Hello, and welcome to the Herb Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Anel Shaleen. Anel is a research fellow in the Middle East program at the Washington-based Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. She's an expert on religious and political authority in the Middle East and North Africa. In addition to academic writing, she's written for the Washington Post, The Nation, Foreign Policy, Politico, and Foreign Affairs. Our conversation today focuses on how Biden's America is dealing with the multiple challenges and rapidly changing landscape of the Middle East. Anel, welcome back to the podcast. Bill, great to be back. Thanks for having me. In a recent article for Responsible Statecraft, you wrote about a decision by Senator Bernie Sanders to withdraw a resolution he had sponsored that would have blocked any U.S. support the Saudi-led coalition against the Houthis in the Yemen war. What is the significance of Saunders stepping back? And what does it say about U.S. involvement in the war in Yemen? Yeah, so this happened just before uh, Congress went on its holiday recess. And we had Senator Sanders, who had previously, uh, the week before, had said he was going to bring the War Powers Resolution to the floor of the Senate. However, then when he was set to do so, he, as, as you said, said that he was going to withdraw the vote because the administration had reached out to him and expressed opposition to the War Powers Resolution. And Sanders said he had a commitment from the administration to work with him on finding a way to end U.S. involvement in this war. And Sanders did say that if the administration didn't fulfill that commitment, that he would reintroduce the War Powers Resolution. It is trickier now, though, because um, obviously the Republicans have a slim majority in the House of Representatives, whereas before we had the Democrats controlling uh, the House. So it's it's not clear necessarily that uh, that this would get past the House. And and furthermore, you know, part of what's what's different now is in the past when we had Congress pass the Yemen War Powers Resolution under the Trump administration, all Democratic senators voted in favor of it and uh, it had widespread support in the House as well, primarily among Democrats, in part because this was seen as a way to show disapproval of Trump and his unconditional support for the Saudis. This also happened in the wake of the brutal murder of Jamal Khashoggi. So there was really a lot of public support to punish the Saudis and, and a lot of momentum behind that, especially among Democrats. Let me just jump in there uh, briefly, Anel, uh, just for the sake of listeners who may not know what the War Powers Resolution is. So the the War Powers Resolution um, comes out of the War Powers Act, which was passed in 1973 in, in the context of the Vietnam War, where Congress was essentially trying to reassert its constitutionally granted war-making authority that the the executive branch of the US government is supposed to get permission from Congress to officially wage wars. However, since World War II, none of the military actions the US has engaged in from Korea to Vietnam to Kosovo to Iraq to Afghanistan, none of these have actually been officially declared war by Congress. They've all been uh, executive actions by the White House. Um, and this, the reason this has happened, I mean, Congress has essentially abrogated its responsibility to declare wars, although you did have support, 
obviously in the wake of 9-11, you had the authorization for the use of military force, which was authorized in 2001, and then another one authorized in 2002, which allowed uh, for the waging of the war in Iraq. Um, but these these were again these were authorization for the use of military force, which is which is different than the declaration of war. So all that to say that the the White House never got congressional approval to to engage in any sort of military action in Yemen. Um, and so back in 2019, what we observed was Congress finally uh, reasserting this war making authority and passing successfully passing this war powers resolution which trump then vetoed and there was there was not a, a veto proof majority in congress to override that veto so we we saw the u.s continuing to support saudi military aggression in yemen as a result now saunders withdrew because he believed he had a commitment from the biden administration as you say the terms have changed a little bit but where does, does that leave Biden and the Yemen war. Yes, so partly Sanders withdrew because he did not have the votes. As I was saying, the the conditions are different now. When it was a vote against Trump and a, trying to rein in this perceived unfettered U.S. support for Saudi Arabia, uh, it was different. Whereas now the Biden administration can make the claim that they have been supporting diplomacy with the appointment of special envoy for Yemen, Tim Lenderking and that conditions in Yemen are different. We have the, the six-month truce, which expired in October, but sort of aspects of it remain in place, uh, specifically the fact that we haven't seen a resumption of trans-border attacks, either from the Houthis launching missiles and drones at Saudi Arabia or the Saudis or the Emiratis uh, launching airstrikes on Yemeni territory. That hasn't resumed. And so the Biden administration can argue that as a result of the U.S. support for um, the U.N. taking the lead on diplomacy here, that a war powers resolution really isn't necessary. I would argue that it is it's not acceptable for the U.S. to continue to support the Saudi Air Force, essentially to hold the threat of airstrikes over the Yemeni population. Um, that the U.S. really has no business being involved in helping the Saudis wage this war, and that the the notion that the Saudis could just resume airstrikes at any moment and that they would do so with U.S. support is really not acceptable. And, and instead, what the U.S. should do is to make it clear to the Saudis that the U.S. is not going to support their actions in Yemen anymore, and that really the, the Yemen civil war needs to be returned to the control of Yemenis. One concern here is that this would leave the Houthis in a position of power because they remain militarily the strongest force within Yemen. And it's only with the support of Saudis and Emiratis that the anti-Houthi forces have been able to maintain a credible sort of resistance to, to further consolidation of Houthi control. But my, my, my rejoinder to that would be the longer the war goes on, the stronger we've seen the Houthis become. And so arguably, the longer the U.S. remains involved, the longer the Houthis are able to maintain this claim that they are the defenders of Yemen in a way that's quite similar to how the Taliban managed to further consolidate support over time in Afghanistan, where you had people who wouldn't have wanted to be ruled by the Taliban but they, in in the end, preferred Taliban rule because of nationalism, and and also that the Taliban were were the the only actors that were defending ordinary Afghans from foreign military aggression. 
So again, I, I just, I maintain that if, if there are critics who are really worried about Houthi control, it's time to return the Yemeni conflict to Yemenis and that once there's no longer this foreign involvement, we're likely to see various actors who perhaps fought alongside the Houthis, then turning their attention away from defending Yemen and now to resolving this question of who's in fact going to rule Yemen and, and we're likely to see much more uh, resistance to Houthi rule as a result. Mm, that's interesting. Your comparison the Taliban is telling as well because the Houthis are increasingly a fundamentalist uh, uh, sect and they have repressed journalists. They've, they've really been very hard on women. Uh, of course, they control two thirds of the population. This emphasis on diplomacy, um, Tim Lenderking, you've mentioned, but how would you grade the Biden administration's handling thus far of the Yemen war? Where would you put it? Well, I, you know, I, part of that has to do with a comparison to the Trump administration. You know, I, I would grade them an F to the extent that they lifted Obama era controls that had put in place to, to try to protect civilians, to, to limit some of the weapons that were sold to Saudi Arabia. And then as Trump was just leaving office, he designated the Houthis a foreign terrorist organization, which, you know, aid groups at the time were very clear that that would have a minimal impact on the Houthis themselves. Um, but would have a massive impact on the ability of, of humanitarian organizations to deliver aid to Yemenis. So this would really just be devastating for the population where the, the vast majority of Yemenis depend very heavily on humanitarian support to even survive. Um, and so, you know, the Biden administration came in, they, they lifted that foreign terrorist uh, designation, they declared, Biden said he would end U.S support for offensive Saudi actions in Yemen. Unfortunately, we, we then saw that um, actually airstrikes increased. Until the time of the truce, we had seen an uptick in airstrikes conducted by the Saudi-led co coalition in Yemen, which contradicts what the Biden administration had said that they would end US support for offensive military actions because the Saudi Royal Air Force cannot operate without the assistance of US military contractors providing spare parts and maintenance. So this notion that, that the Biden administration was no longer providing support for offensive action was, was demonstrated to be, to be inaccurate. Furthermore, the administration did authorize over a billion dollars in new weapon sales to the Saudis, even though they had declared that there would, there would be a pause on those. So, you know, better than what Trump was doing. Um, but from my perspective, really what the US should do is to no longer be involved in helping the Saudis wage this war of aggression in Yemen. I, and again, it's, I, I hear the concerns about the Houthis and, and they're, that they are fundamentalists, that they're deeply misogynistic, they engage in horrific human rights violations. But the longer the war goes on, the more they consolidate power. So <laughs> I, I really do maintain that in terms of trying to move the Yemen conflict towards a resolution, the, the first step is to return control of this conflict to the Yemenis themselves, mm -hmm. um, which means getting the, the Saudis and Emiratis out and ending U.S. involvement. Ideally, uh, Iran would, would also get out, would no longer try to smuggle in weapons to the Houthis. Um, but the U.S. has really no leverage over Iran and no leverage over the Houthis. So mm -hmm. there's just really not that much the U.S. can do on, on that front from here. And the grade, Anel, how would you grade the Biden administration? 
I'd grade them a, a C, um, you know, better, better than failing, um, but a lot of room for improvement. Okay. Well, you, you, you've touched on the Saudis. Let, let's move on to relations with Saudi Arabia. Um, clearly, they're strained, uh, the, the famous uh, fist bump in Jeddah. But, you know, there are some that argue that the strategic value of the kingdom has been waning for some time as regards uh, the U.S., uh, so that the spat with MBS is not such a big deal. What do you think? I think there remains a big misperception among Americans that the U.S. is still dependent on Saudi oil. And so the U.S. has to just kind of bow to to Saudi preferences. And that's simply not the case. The, the U.S. Is, is one of the largest oil producers in the world. The U.S. is no longer dependent on Saudi oil. The role of Saudi Arabia in oil markets does remain quite significant. The Saudis are quite significant in terms of influencing the price of oil, but the U.S. is no longer dependent on Saudi oil. Instead, the, the significance of the Saudi role in the U.S. economy really relates to the military industrial complex because the Saudis are the largest customer of the U.S. weapons industry. And we've seen a, a, a decades-long effort by the, the big five U.S. military companies, so group, you know, companies like Raytheon or Boeing or Lockheed Martin, have been very systematic in making sure that their products are produced across the whole United States. And so no members of Congress are interested in seeing any kind of reduction in the, the production of, of these materials, even to the extent that sometimes the Pentagon would like to terminate a, a contract for something that they no longer have a use for. But the member of Congress says, no, 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 we, I don't want to lose those jobs in my district. I'm just going to increase the defense budget so we can continue to provide those products for you and then we'll also provide the products that you actually need. And so this, this is why we continue to see the, the U.S. maintaining this relationship with Saudi Arabia, even though, as, as you rightly pointed out, it, the strategic relationship is no longer there to the same extent, at least not in terms of the oil market. And just one, one thing to note here, in terms of this notion that the, you know, so many U.S. jobs are dependent on the, these sort of military contracts and that there's no way to move past that, if if the real question had to do with trying to maintain American jobs, there are other sectors that are are much more labor intensive. Things like education or uh, healthcare, alternative energy. These are all sectors where, if investments were made to to build up those, we'd actually see more jobs coming out as a result. But instead, what we continue to see are these massive Pentagon budgets. Uh, we, again, we we just saw. You know, one of the, one of the largest budgets ever passed. You know, on on top of what the Biden administration itself had asked for, Congress then authorized even more money for the Pentagon. So, in terms of thinking about the the Saudi relationship, I think another crucial thing to keep in mind here is we are seeing MBS asserting Saudi independence. That you know, the the Saudis are tired of being treated as this this sort of vassal state by the U.S. We saw a lot of resentment from the notion that the Saudis should increase oil production prior to the midterm elections when, when the Saudis instead declared that they were going to, to cut production. I think Saudis were really appalled when you saw 
the the umbrage from members of Congress where they came out and, and said, you know, we need to end weapon sales to Saudi Arabia, we need to totally rethink this relationship. I, I think the Saudis are are no longer seeing their interests as being quite so aligned with the United States and instead seeing countries like Russia and China as probably better partners for Saudi interests moving forward. Mm, yeah, so so shifts on on both sides and and I quite agree with you that uh many many not just saudis but 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 many arabs took umbrage at the idea that uh, the middle east should simply respond to the demands of america and that the gulf states should be treated as client states it was it was very offensive and i think it speaks to a disconnect there and also i think a kind of a disengagement that that's going on but you mentioned iran i want to ask you now about the jcpoa the talks in vienna appear to be moribund is that how you see it? And, and if they are, what are the consequences of failure uh, for, for the region? Yes. I mean, as, as you said, even Biden himself has stated that, that the talks are essentially dead. And I th- the consequences of failure here could be really profound, especially if the U.S. continues to try to consolidate an anti-Iran coalition uniting Israel with American Arab partners. Um, just the other day, we saw senior officials from the UAE, Bahrain, Egypt, Morocco, the US and Israel convened in Abu Dhabi for the third Negev Forum steering committee meeting. This was established after the Abraham Accords. Notably, countries like Jordan were absent. Jordan has been pretty concerned about the, the direction some of this is, is taking. And obviously, the, the percentage of, of Jordanian citizens who are of Palestinian descent is is influences the Jordan's position vis-a-vis Israel. On the other hand, we know that countries like the UAE continue to maintain relations with Iran and would be understandably hesitant to end up in the middle of a war between Israel and Iran. But if Iran does does end up developing one, then we're likely to see the Saudis clamoring to to have one. You know, they're they're already working with Pakistan on the, the possibility of nuclear power, but we could see them also moving towards the development of a weapon. Uh, so this would this could very easily boil over into open conflict. So it, I, I in general, I, I just I question why the Biden administration didn't simply rejoin the JCPOA immediately upon coming into office the way you know, Biden just had the U.S. rejoin the Paris Climate Accords, for example, just in, in those very early days when it was assumed that he would overturn much of what the Trump administration had had done. This would have been a, a sort of politically cost-free way to, to reverse that decision and, and, you know, get the U.S. back into the agreement that had constrained Iran's nuclear ambitions to that point. Yeah, I think you make a very good point there. If Biden had simply jumped in quickly, whereas the situation now is that the Iranians are continuing to expand the capacity, it's causing a lot of anxiety, certainly in Israel and and in the Gulf states and elsewhere in the region. But let's talk now about Israel. Uh, the most extreme right wing, some would call it fascist government, is now in power in Israel. And already the signs, not just for Palestinians, but for Israeli democracy, are not looking very good. I think the Biden administration has a problem on its hands here. Thus far, how do you think it is coping with the return of Benjamin Netanyahu? So unfortunately, I don't think the Biden administration is really prepared for the ways that Bibi's new government will challenge U.S.-Israel relations. So, for example, when we saw the new Minister of National Security 
the far-right politician Itamar Ben-Gavir, made this provocative visit to the Haram al-Sharif in Jerusalem. And in response, you know, the U.S. ambassador to Israel, Tom Nides, warned after the visit that the U.S. wants to preserve the status quo around the holy sites and that actions to prevent this are unacceptable. He said that the United States had been very clear in our conversations with the Israeli government on this issue. Uh, but, you know, clearly the new Bibi's new government is not planning to listen to the Biden administration. They've announced plans to evict over a thousand Palestinians from Masafriyata in the West Bank and also to scale back criticism of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, but in response, we saw the Biden administration, you know, they recently received Israel's newly appointed strategic affairs minister, Ron Dermer. This was the first member of the new Netanyahu government to visit the U.S. Uh, he was ambassador to the U.S. during Bibi's previous time in office, and he was considered especially close to the Trump administration. And although the Biden admin has hinted that they may not work with some of the newly appointed far right ministers, but they, you know, they had a, they didn't see Dermer as as a problem. So in general, I, I anticipate we're going to see more provocative actions from Israel's new government, some of which may even humiliate the U.S. But I, I doubt that we'd see any sort of criticism from Biden of these policies or of Netanyahu himself. Mm, yeah, and I'm just thinking too of the of the uh, murder of Shireen Abu Akhle, an American citizen, and the response to that from the Biden administration has been, well, I think very weak. Exactly, exactly. I mean, it's it's really increasingly we're we're likely to see again, as as we we're saying, not only Israel but other other traditional U.S. partners in the Middle East that no longer see the relationship with the US as being such a top priority because there are other options now, you know, there's it's a multipolar global system where they they could reach out to to Russia or to China. And, I, you know, I, I think the US doesn't really understand how to operate in an environment where the US is no longer the the sort of most, you know, un, unquestionably the by far the most powerful actor in the system. I think the U.S. military establishment needs to, to rethink how we operate. I think the U.S. diplomatic corps also needs to rethink some of this. We're going to have to get more used to compromises and to seeing these countries that we were used to sort of acting much more closely uh, in ways that seemed aligned with our interests. They're not going to act that way anymore. And what, what is the U.S. going to do about that? I, I think it just calls for a fundamental rethink. Mm, yeah, yeah. And I think, too, you make a good point that the Biden administration just didn't see this Netanyahu uh, coalition. They didn't see it coming. And yet, you know, it was there. You could see the support growing amongst the, certainly young Israelis for uh, Ben Gavir and Smotrich and these other very extremist uh, leaders. And you could see it in the violence that uh, daily being carried out on on Palestinians. So uh, sometimes, uh, you know, the allegation about Biden is that, you know, Papa Joe is kind of asleep uh, at the desk. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I, I do worry about that. And, you know, the obviously the Biden administration came into the, the COVID pandemic. There, there have been major issues Biden needs to address. And I think probably a lot of his attention on the foreign policy sphere is is occupied with Ukraine and Russia. 
And my assessment is he's outsourced a lot of his Middle East policy to advisors, you know, people like Brett McGurk, Colin Cowell, Jake Sullivan to a certain extent, and that, you know, these individuals, I seem to really prioritize kind of the, the status quo. Um, and, and again, to, to sort of think less about the Middle East, which strategically is, is not as important as it was, again, at the height of kind of the, the Iraq war, the war in Afghanistan. You know, it's perfectly natural for, you know, now that those wars have wound down, for the U.S. to be focusing elsewhere in the world. And, and I, I think that is perceived as uh, by, by many of our, our Arab partners as sort of a betrayal. But, you know, I, in general, I, I think probably U.S. involvement in the region has been, been largely detrimental. You know, the U.S. US policy has been to flood the region with weapons, to continue to support these, these dictators all over the region. You know, going back to this question of, of democracy, you know, Israel is not interested in, in democracy in the rest of the world. You know, Israel uh, can work quite easily with some of these, you know, leaders in places like, you know, the UAE, so far more under the table with Saudi Arabia, though that relationship may be, end up being formalized. And, you know, this, this question of, of the future of Israeli democracy, I think also just speaks to the fact that, that populations all over the world are not necessarily seeing the benefits of democracy. Um, and this is something that Biden himself has, has talked about, the need to sort of shore up the, the coalition of democracies against illiberalism. But the, the U.S. just isn't necessarily doing a very good job of, of trying to make the case of, you know, that, that democracy is, is the least bad system. It may not be perfect, but it's, it's certainly better than authoritarianism. I just fear that for many people around the world, they just, they're not seeing enough evidence of that. Mm. Yeah, and, and, you know, I mean, I take your point about the Middle East being of less strategic importance. And yet, you know, when I look at the, at the Middle East, I'm just thinking about a podcast I did last week with Amal Handur. And, and speaking of, of Lebanon, she said, for us Lebanese as individuals, the state is at once non-existent and predatory. And, you know, when we look around the region, we see democracy snuffed out in Tunisia, the vicious repression and the failing economic system in Egypt, Libyan elites uh, scrabbling over the, the available loot, uh, and of course, the economically and politically wrecked state of Lebanon. It's not a happy picture. And, and of course, America has had a role in facilitating and being part of that picture. And I just wonder, what has Biden done, really, to attempt to... Uh, somehow improve that situation or has he just kind of washed his hands of it and said it's a big mess i'm not going to deal with it yeah you know unfortunately I, I do think it is the latter and i i do think this this remains a widespread perception uh, among americans you know europeans that that the middle east is just chaotic and prone to violence which which again is is just truly not fair, because given, as I was saying, that you know, U.S. policy for the past several decades has been this this large military footprint in the region has been just selling massive amounts of weapons to these countries, and again, propping up dictators, which themselves are are already more empowered by the fact that that the the economies of the region either depend directly on on the export of oil or for countries that don't have as as much in the way of, of oil uh, or fossil fuel resources, they often uh, 
tend to to send workers to those countries or, or you know live on the remittances so so oil continues to really run the economy of the region in ways that are really detrimental to you know trying to empower the population vis-a-vis -vis their their rulers i mean sort of this, this notion of the resource curse and and the relationship that has with political systems in terms of what what would have been a, a better policy for biden or for the us to do you know, I was already saying that it's sort of natural that the U.S. would would spend somewhat less time thinking about the Middle East, you know, given that that the big wars there have have now wound down, at least the, the U.S. wars. But, you know, in, in general, I, I think that what's unfortunate is the, the U.S. has really doubled down on security cooperation and on the sale, again, as, I, as I've said, of weapons, whereas and sort of ceded the economic territory to China, sort of said, well, you know, labor's cheaper in China, China can always sell products for, for less, so we really just can't compete with China in that in the economic sphere, and we're just going to focus on our military relationships. And again, I, I think this has been truly detrimental in terms of empowering anti-democratic forces in many of these places. Um, we saw big upticks in all of this, this military assistance that went to the region in the aftermath of 9-11. And the effects that that's had, you know, also in in you know northern Africa and the Sahel, um, some of these military coups that we've seen over the last few years, it's 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 just really unfortunate, I think, because many of these countries, I I think, continue to have some measure of belief in the United States and and what the U.S. stands for in terms of opportunity of of you know still some of the best universities in the world some of you know cutting edge research coming out of the united states you know the the us still has areas um has a lot to offer beyond just the sale of 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 sort of bombs and, and fighter planes and so i my hope is that um, the Biden administration and future administrations will will rethink this emphasis on just kind of the the security side and and really try to be more innovative in thinking about how the U.S. can can compete with China in in these other areas economically in terms of education and research and you know the the biggest challenges we're facing things like climate change. Mm, yeah, yeah, climate change is is a huge one, and and you know the. The, the point about weapons, I mean, going back to, uh, I think it was Dwight Eisenhower, when he was leaving, he warned about the military-industrial complex. And of course, he was a former general, so he knew what he was talking about. That emphasis on weapon sales to the exclusion of a whole lot of other things that could be both beneficial to America and, and, to, and to these struggling countries in the Middle East. But let me just finally ask you, uh, you know, we've just watched that extraordinary spectacle of the vote for the Speaker of the House, and it's, it's finally concluded, and yes, Kevin McCarthy is now the Speaker, but rather like with Netanyahu, he's given, you know, over a great deal of power to this extreme right wing of the GOP. Um, how is, I mean, I think Biden's going to be fighting a lot of domestic fires, and therefore he'll be even less interested in in, in the Middle East than he is now. What do you think? No, I, I think you're absolutely right. We are likely to see sort of a lot more gridlock in Congress on top of uh, what what has already become the status quo. You know, in, in terms of the implications this has for foreign policy towards the Middle East, I mean, we're we're I'm I'm not anticipating a whole lot of impact. You know, I, I think 
the the Freedom Caucus and you know these these far right wing Republicans in the House, I don't think are are particularly focused on what's happening in the Middle East, and in you know in in some ways that that may be good. I I do think a lot of the effects of U.S. policy towards the region have been in fact detrimental, and you know and and partly this does correspond to some of the the expressions we're seeing from our, our partners in the region that that are not interested in kind of you know when when the u.s says jump they the u.s thinks that that they're going to respond by saying how high i i think increasingly we are going to see ongoing deepening of relationships of these countries with china we've already seen in the wake of the russian invasion of ukraine a hesitancy on the part of these countries to line up on the u.s side against russia uh so the u.s playing such a big role in the region has not really been been good for the region or for the united states um and i i my assessment is that china has watched that and has said no we're we're really not interested in kind of taking over this this um you know forward basing model that the u.s has adopted in the region and again even even if they were this does not fundamentally threaten the the security of the United States. One other point to think about there is the extent to which, you know, especially the Gulf countries are tired of the U.S. lecturing them about human rights, and they know that neither Russia nor China uh, really care about human rights, and so they're not going to hear any lectures on that front. Um, and in fact, you know, these countries all share concerns about political Islam, you know, the the concerns about so-called terrorism, whether it's, you know, coming from Chechnya or the Uyghur population, they, they see their interests as really aligned um, in, in cracking down on political Islam. You know, on the one hand, this, this, does, this, is not, this does not bode well for human rights in the region. But on the other hand, it's, it's not as if <laughs> the U.S. being in sort of the preponderant power in the region really had a great impact on human rights either. Well, uh, and now you've given us lots to think about, and I thank you very much for that. Thank you so much, Bill. Thanks for all of your work and, and you know, drawing attention to these issues. Thanks. Thank you. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Anel Shaleen, a research fellow at Washington-based Quincy Institute. Since we launched our podcast in 2020, it's been listened to more than 100,000 times in countries right around the world. So a big thanks to all our listeners. And if you're a first-timer, check out our podcast library on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Amazon. I hope you're enjoying our podcasts, which we bring you with no advertising and no sponsors. We are a truly independent source for analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa. You can support our independent voice through a donation. Details on how to do so at ArabDigest.org. And when you go to our website, you can also find out about our daily newsletter, and how to get a free trial. Check us out on ArabDigest.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading, essential listening from independent sources.